Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Well, welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Um, This is Shreya Gupta. And I'm Michael Vu. And we are continuing our Landmark series in collaboration with ASO and SSO. Today's topic, we will be covering colorectal cancer. As we know that this is the third most common cancer in the United States and affecting more close to 150,000 new patients projected in 2020. As we also know that colorectal cancer is highly preventable and screening and detection has greatly improved our outcomes and early diagnosis is key to survival. To discuss and to kick off this two-part series of colorectal cancer, we have Dr. George Chang joining us. He is the Deputy Department Chair of Surgical Oncology, Section Chief of Colorectal, and a professor at MD, MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Dr. Chang did his medical school in UCLA, followed by surgical training at UCSF and colorectal fellowship training at Mayo Clinic. He's an avid researcher. His uh, research interests are cancer treatment, outcomes research, and clinical epidemiology related to cancer treatments. He also completed his master's in clinical research in UT Houston. He has authored numerous publications in the field of colorectal cancer, um, colorectal cancer. We are extremely honored to have you on our podcast to discuss this landmark series on rectal cancer. Dr. Chang, welcome on Behind the Knife. Thanks very much. It's really my pleasure to be here. So before we delve into this topic, uh, I wanted to talk about the recent death of a very beloved actor, uh, Chadwick Boseman. Uh, You recently talked about colorectal cancer uh, in in an opinion that you wrote in Houston Chronicle. Tell us a little bit about your article. Well, the death of Chadwick Boseman um, at such a young age, 43, was a deep and poignant loss. Um, but his death from colorectal cancer really brings attention to the alarming rise in the incidence of colorectal cancer in young adults and the rate at which young adults and, and black Americans in particular are dying from colorectal cancer. Um, it's um, in addition, you know, um, black colorectal cancer um, patients are more likely to be diagnosed with more advanced disease and have worse survival outcomes. We wrote this op-ed to highlight this issue. Um, and in that op-ed, I described the results of the Delaware Cancer Treatment Program, which um, not many, which which uh, many people may be familiar, but uh, um, but there clearly is greater opportunity to share this experience. This was established by the state legislatures as an aggressive stance on curbing the growing disparities in colorectal cancer survival. This really took. Um, took uh, legislative will. Special programs were enacted to reach the black community, including local efforts pairing nurse navigators with community organizations and and, um, targeted educational outreach. Combined, these programs gave every Delaware citizen universal colorectal cancer coverage. In the first five years of this program, colorectal cancer screenings increased 25% among black people in Delaware, rising to mirror the white population. And among black patients, rates of diagnosis at advanced stages were slashed nearly in half. 
And importantly, incidence and mortality rates soon equalized. The success of this program really highlights um, one potential prescription to reduce colorectal cancer disparities, and that is to improve screening rates, ensure equal access to quality care, and to uh, eliminate systemic uh, racism. That was uh, the point we wanted to make um, in this uh, opinion piece. That's amazing. It's very nice to see uh, surgeons uh, leading this campaign. I think that we are at the forefront of uh, really increasing and improving outcomes uh, related to this preventable cancer. And um, this is um, such a great discussion, such a great uh, opinion um, that was in Houston Chronicle. Um, I invite everyone to read this and thank you for sharing that on our uh, on our podcast. So the topic for uh, the discussion uh, today will be the management uh, of the lateral lymph nodes in rectal cancer. So just to set up the background for our listeners, there are currently two schools of thought. On the West, the circumferential resection margin has been the main focus and predictor of overall survival with treatment of lateral nodes with chemoradiation. However, on the east, the lateral lymph nodes are treated as part of the local regional disease and hence treated with surgical resection without neoadjuvant therapy. However, the jury is still out on which approach is superior or adequate. And today, with the help of our expert, Dr. Chang, we'll address the landmark papers uh, discussing this topic. So without further ado, uh, let's begin our discussion. So the first landmark paper we are going to discuss today is the JCOG 0212 trial, also called the TME surgery with or without lateral pelvic lymph node dissection. So Dr. Chang, could you briefly talk about the aims of the JCOG 0212 trial? Sure. As you've alluded to, um, I think this discussion really has to begin with the evolution of rectal cancer treatment in the West compared to the evolution of rectal cancer treatment um, primarily in Japan. In the West, we recognize that the outcomes following surgery for rectal cancer were suboptimal. Local recurrence rates were, um, were unacceptably high. This led to the introduction of the use of radiation therapy uh, in combination with surgery to um, help improve the outcomes of surgery in rectal cancer. What this resulted in um, is a reduction in the rate of local recurrence, about 50%, uh, relatively speaking, uh, compared to surgery alone. We have seen, see, we have uh, since seen the evolution of surgical treatment, including with uh, um, promotion and advancement of um, optimal surgical technique, so-called uh, TME surgery, and this has led to uh, improvements in outcome um, as well. One of the things that we've recognized um, during the development of TME surgery is that the resection margin, what we call the circumferential resection margin, is one of the critical, uh, critically important um, out, um, uh, uh, endpoints or outcomes of surgery that determines um, that determines local control. That is, those patients in whom uh, surgery is associated with a positive circumferential resection margin. Uh, will have a much higher risk uh, for local failure with or without uh, radiation therapy. 
While this kind of evolution was occurring in the West, in the East, there was a general recognition that uh, lymph node disease was a major contributor to recurrence. And therefore, um, surgery uh, was focused on ensuring complete resection, including of the lymph node basin. Of course, in low rectal cancer, um, the drainage pattern um, occurs both centrally and in an ascending fashion, that is along the superior rectal vessels, but also laterally along the internal iliac and obturator chain. And so that's how the uh, field of rectal cancer surgery has, has separately evolved um, in the West to include chemoradiation therapy or radiation therapy along with an attention to that circumferential resection margin. And then in the East, um, really attention to completeness of surgery that does also include that resection margin, but also surgical management of the lateral pelvic uh, nodal basin. So um, the approach in Japan is prophylactic dissection of the lateral compartment, much in the way that we consider prophylactic, if you will, radiation of the lateral compartment to eliminate micrometastatic disease. So the treatment standard in Japan, unlike in the West, um, is total mesorectal excision and lateral pelvic lymph node dissection. So JCOG 0212 was a non-inferiority trial that aimed to compare the standard of care, which is total mesorectal excision and lateral pelvic lymph node dissection, to the experimental arm, which is total mesorectal excision alone. This is a bit of an unusual concept for surgeons in the West because we think of total mesorectal excision alone as being the standard of care. And so, um, uh, but, but uh, JCOG 0212 um, uh, uh, actually viewed the total mesorectal um, excision alone as the experimental arm and asked if that was non-inferior to total mesorectal excision um, with lateral pelvic lymph node dissection. What the investigators found um, was that they could not demonstrate non-inferiority of total mesorectal excision alone. In fact, in the total mesorectal excision without lateral pelvic lymph node dissection arm, there was a significantly higher rate of local failure. It was 13% compared to 7% in the total mesorectal excision plus lateral pelvic lymph node dissection arm. If you think about some of the outcomes that we see in the radiation trials, you can see that this is quite analogous to the local recurrence rates associated with radiation and surgery versus surgery alone. It should be noted though, in JCOG 0212, those patients who had clinical evidence of lateral pelvic metastasis, that is clinical evidence of metastasis within the internal iliac or operator basins, those patients were excluded. In other words, it only included those patients in whom they felt that there was no clinical evidence of disease within that compartment. And Dr. Chang, in, uh, in your paper, uh, you then compare the results of JCOG 0212 to the Dutch trial. Um, what Can you explain the Dutch trial and how do those two uh, how do those two experiments differ and how do we synthesize their, their results in our understanding of, of what the optimal management of those lymph nodes is? Right. 
So um, I was alluding to this in my earlier comments. So the Dutch TME trial is a landmark study that that um, all students of rectal cancer should be familiar. Um, it is a study. It was the very first study with surgical quality control or surgical quality assurance. That is, in um, uh, efforts to ensure the qual that the quality of of surgery was um, was uh, confirmed. There was a training program and monitoring to ensure that uh, that um, total mesorectal excision was performed. And the experimental arm in that study was radiation plus surgery. So unlike the um, unlike the JCOGO two one two study, the control arm here was surgery alone. And the experimental arm was radiation followed by surgery. This is an older study and surgical technique has since improved. But what this study demonstrated was that radiation plus surgery was superior to surgery alone, particularly with respect to local control. Neither of these studies demonstrated um, overall survival improvements, but um, that is a little bit more of a complicated issue. and. Um, uh, I think it's um, for the purposes of this discussion, um, focusing on local control is relevant. Local control is a major problem, um, obviously, in, in rectal cancer. So, so it sounds like we've got, you know, these two candidates for um, improving that local regional control, um, surgical versus radiation or chemoradiation. Do we have data um, that, that help us distinguish perhaps which one of these is a superior approach? How good is our data in this uh, in this yeah. question? That's that that obviously is the question that people people um, always wanna wanna know, and um, unfortunately, as you can um, as you can imagine, it's pretty difficult to do a head to head study like that. So there is no randomized trial comparing surgery plus radiation to surgery plus. Um, uh, 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 lateral pelvic lymph node dissection. And the reason for that is that the evolution, as we've discussed, um, has really followed these geographic lines. Um, uh, you know, in the West, we couldn't conduct a randomized trial because there's insufficient expertise in lateral pelvic lymph node dissection. And in the East, there is a significant bias um, against radiotherapy, and therefore it would be difficult to uh, conduct that trial as well. As it turns out, there's increasing use of radiation therapy even in Japan, uh, as there has been um, more recently uh, much more attention that has come to the role of lateral pelvic uh, lymph node dissection, even in the setting of radiotherapy uh, in the West. So we are fortunately um, at a time when we are seeing a bit of a convergence of um, the management um, strategies. And, and we can talk more about um, why this is relevant. Um, but um, I, think, I think what the data has shown is that whether we're comparing surgery alone to radiation plus surgery or surgery plus lateral pelvic lymph node dissection to just central surgery, we're seeing that there is um, a similar um, benefit with respect to local control. What that means is that the prophylactic approach to unresected, um, in the case of the West, um, lateral compartment, micrometastatic disease, um, um, uh, uh, 
or that the that the prophylactic management of, of micrometastasis within the lateral compartment, either through radiotherapy or through prophylactic surgery, seems to achieve a similar outcome. One thing that these data show us um, is uh, is insufficient is simply central compartment surgery alone. For the for our young listeners, um, could you let's take a step back here and could you for us uh, explain what exactly a lateral pelvic lymph node dissection involve and maybe comment on the morbidity of this seizure uh, or uh, perhaps even some of the surgical aspects um, as far as increasing the time of the operation, uh, comment on the blood loss or you know things that a surgeon needs to think about when. Um, trying to incorporate into this practice? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And one of the reasons why there has been uh, this ongoing um, debate, um, there in general, our surgical training has very limited um, opportunity to gain experience in dissection and in the lateral compartment. What we mean by the lateral compartment are the lymph nodes along the internal iliac artery, um, as well as within the obturator space. And the boundaries of this dissection um, include the um, obturator internus muscle uh, laterally, um, the external iliac anteriorly, the bladder distally, and the sacral nerve roots posteriorly. This is kind of a you know, a difficult area in which to work because there are so many vessels and so many critical structures. So one of the reasons why this debate has persisted is also because the body habitus of Western patients is different than those in the East. In other words, it's much more difficult. This is a challenging operation, much more difficult to perform in um, or it's perceived to be much more difficult to perform in Western patients. And clearly, you know, the um, the more obesity we have, the more difficult it is to perform. But but it's now been well demonstrated, and we we and others have shown that you can do this safely and effectively. Historically, this has been associated with significant blood loss, but now we see that this can be achieved even in a minimally invasive fashion with minimal blood loss. Historically, this was associated with significant autonomic dysfunction um, because it involved um, uh, in its initial evolution, it also included resection of some of the nerves and disruption of the autonomic nerves. But now with advances in technique, we can see that there's much more preservation that can be achieved. And so we can preserve autonomic function as well. And so the morbidity actually is, is um, in, 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 with proper technique, the morbidity actually is not that high. And in fact, we see that in the JCOG0212 study that there really was not a significant increase in morbidity in, in the control arm compared to the experimental arm. There was, however, longer operative time and greater blood loss. The other aspect of this, as we think about this, particularly in the West, is that um, there are concepts of prophylactic lymph node dissection and therapeutic lymph node dissection. So in prophylactic lymph node dissection, as was performed in 0212, but, uh, both sides would would have to be dissected, which puts the autonomic nerves on, at both sides at risk. But in the event, in the case of therapeutic dissection, which is the approach that um, we would advocate uh, um, in our program, uh, then bilateral dissection is only performed when there's clinical evidence of disease. And so we now can take an approach that combines um, uh, on these strategies to minimize uh, morbidity. 
So coming back to the paper, we talk about um, how lateral pelvic lymph nodes are categorized. And there was a school of thought that whether these are local regional disease or should be characterized as metastatic disease. Can you comment on that? So um, the drainage pattern of the, the drainage pathways of the rectum um, include the superior hemorrhoidal vessel vascular drainage, obviously. So that's the central drainage, uh, but it also includes drainage through the internal iliac system. And so um, these would be considered um, uh, regional lymph node metastases. Historically, um, in the West, we had considered this area because it was not, uh, I think because it was not a part of the anatomy that was included um, with surgery, we consider this to be uh, more distant metastasis. And I think the way to think about it is we can look at survival based on uh, presence of lymph node metastasis. And this was well demonstrated um, uh, within um, uh, pool data from the Japanese. We can see, <coughs> excuse me, um, we can see that survival outcomes for those patients with lymph node metastasis within the mesorectum is better than survival for those patients with lymph node metastasis in the lateral compartment. However, those patients still do better than those who have, um, um, who have uh, disease at distant sites. So clear evidence of distant metastatic disease. So, so based on that, we can see that their outcomes are already better uh, than those with distant metastasis. And so we can consider the lateral compartment uh, to, be, um, to be regional. According to the AJCC, we consider internal iliac lymph node metastasis to be regional and obturator lymph node metastases to be distant along with external iliac lymph node metastasis. This is a bit of an artificial delineation because it's very difficult actually to delineate whether something is uh, internal iliac um, or uh, or obturator. It's not like there's a clear boundary that says you know one or the other. And we can see that patients, and the obturator area is actually a common area for metastasis. And we see that those patients their survival is actually more aligned with those um, with internal iliac metastasis as opposed to external iliac disease, which is the next level. In other words, it's sort of the next region uh, behind beyond the initial distribution. So, um, so we would, so I would advocate that we consider. Um, uh, internal iliac and obturator lymph node metastasis to be regional, and therefore we should manage them as we do regional disease. One of the things that comes up a lot in this discussion is that if it's metastatic disease, then they need a systemic treatment um, for them and not a surgical approach. And that um, it is true that when patients have uh, systemic disease, we should treat them in a systemic fashion. But much in the same way that we direct uh, patient, um, that, that we manage patients with distant metastasis, such as liver metastasis or lung metastases or metastases to the ovary with surgery and can achieve cure uh, in combination, of course, with multidisciplinary treatment. This is the same approach that we should take um, in the lateral compartment as well. Along the same lines, can you comment on 
the introduction, I know you touched on minimally invasive techniques, but specifically use of the robots uh, for these deeper pelvic uh, resections and uh, dissections. Can you comment on the utility of that and how that has changed um, the landscape of doing uh, lateral pelvic lymph node dissections? Um, sure. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, we still don't have um, uh, widespread availability of lateral pelvic lymph node um, surgical technique in the United States or in the West, actually, for that for that matter. Um, uh, we have certainly um, seen that there's a lot more interest, and 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 we have um, we have certainly utilized that. Um, um, of utilizing uh, the surgical robot to facilitate this dissection. In the in the East, there have been um, many um, successful reports, and in fact, it's fairly commonplace for a laparoscopic lateral pelvic lymph node dissection. Um, laparoscopic pelvic surgery, particularly in Western patients, is is very difficult. Uh, no matter how, no matter what we're doing, whether it be uh, simply um, rectal resection, um, or particularly when we're talking about lateral pelvic lymph node dissection. So the robot has really facilitated our ability to do that. It is the superior um, optics, um, the um, added instrumentation, the greater dexterity, et cetera. All of those things that we talk about um, that, uh, that where the robot can um, make surgery, uh, make difficult surgery easier. This is a, an example of where the robot makes difficult surgery um, easier. You guys might um, want to take a peek at, um, so we just published, um, in fact, I think it just went into press this week, uh, our robotic lateral pelvic lymph node dissection experience in colorectal disease. And so you might want to take a look if, if, if uh, you might find that helpful. Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful suggestion. We'll be sure to put it in the show notes. So uh, all you listeners can, uh, can definitely find the paper in that little section. Um, so I wanted to go back to, to chemo radiotherapy for, for those lymph nodes. There's a, there's a section in your paper, uh, titled chemo radiotherapy alone is not sufficient. And you mentioned recent evidence, um, suggesting that neoadjuvant, um, therapy is not sufficient alone to prevent recurrence in the lateral compartment. Can you tell us about, about, uh, that evidence base and, and what you think that means for our practice? So I think this gets back to this concept of, of um, treatment intent. And, and I think this is a really critical issue as we think about um, uh, lateral pelvic lymph node um, metastases. Are we treating in a, with prophylactic intent? In other words, are we taking a patient who has no clinical evidence of disease and addressing the potential for micrometastasis? That's what we're doing with chemoradiation therapy, and that's what the Japanese are doing with lateral pelvic lymph node dissection in the majority of cases. But there are many patients who also present with clinical evidence of disease. They have pathologic lymph nodes within that lateral compartment. These are lymph nodes that would not normally be included in the standard surgical resection in the TME surgery. And some, and unfortunately, uh, far too often in the West, these patients are dismissed or can be dismissed as having met, as having um, metastatic disease and um, are not offered an opportunity for curative treatment. Or we treat them with chemoradiation with kind of the hopes that we're going to sterilize that compartment. 
what we have seen is that as the central surgery has improved, as, as we've done better um, with uh, surgery for rectal cancer, we are no longer, or we are seeing um, less of an influence of recurrences, what we call central recurrences, those that are happening along the anastomosis or within the unresected residual mesorectum, but we are seeing more of the, of the recurrences occurring in the lateral compartment. When we go back to look at the imaging and the workup on these patients, um, some of the best data for this actually comes from Korea, uh, where they were early adopters of chemoradiation therapy um, and more recently have become um, uh, adopters of the combined approach in the, in the, in the appropriate pay setting. But we see that those patients um, who have um, abnormal lymph nodes in that lateral compartment are at a much higher risk of developing, developing local recurrence. In fact, in um, centers with good central surgery, uh, more than two thirds of local recurrences when they occur were identified in the lateral compartment. And if we look at the um, lymph nodes in that lateral compartment, if we use size as one criteria, size is not the perfect criteria, but it is, it is one criterion that we can use. If we have lymph nodes that are 10 millimeters or more in that lateral compartment, the rate of local recurrence or lateral local failure is as high as 30% or more. And we've seen this actually confirmed in additional data that's come from Oxford in the UK. So as our imaging has improved, we're now much better able to identify um, patients who are at risk for, for disease within that lateral compartment. And radiation alone on, for these patients is inadequate because we are observing local failures. And these local failures are occurring in the lateral compartment. These lateral compartment local failures are extremely hard to treat. They often require resection of the pelvic sidewall to adequately manage them, which is a pretty significant operation which carries uh, morbidity as well. Now, conversely, in the East, the approach, as we discussed, has been um, surgery. And we see that those patients, um, you know, so we've, we've already talked about prophylactic intent. What about therapeutic intent? So those patients have clinical evidence of disease. When we, when we um, look at the data that comes from Japan in, from centers that have been very, very strong proponents of, of um, the radicality of surgery uh, and opponents of radiotherapy, we can see that among those patients who undergo lateral pelvic lymph node dissection and have a positive lymph node identified, those patients also have a similarly high rate of local failure. What we're seeing is that um, we can address micrometastatic disease perhaps with the radiotherapy, but when there's clear evidence of disease, um, you know, clinically within those lymph nodes, the um, radiotherapy seems to be inadequate. And while we can address some of this disease surgically, uh, there are still the microscopic disease deposits or the spread uh, that can come through those lymphatics that are unresected, right? You, since we're not resecting that whole space or dissecting those lymph nodes, so that are unresected, that, that those then become the source of recurrence. And so what we talk about in this landmark series is, is that we now have come to the understanding, and this is an approach that we've taken for many years, we've now come to the understanding for those patients in whom we take a therapeutic intent, they actually, that is those patients who have clinical evidence of lateral pelvic lymph node metastasis, then we can achieve 
optimal pelvic disease control by the combination and only by the combination of chemoradiation and surgery, that is chemoradiation and lateral pelvic lymph node dissection. In fact, when we take that approach, uh, we have demonstrated that we don't develop local recurrences. Um, and, and I think that's the critical point that we were trying to make. And it really demonstrates the evolution of rectal cancer treatment. And we are seeing a convergence of the philosophies of the East and the West, if you will, which is great, actually. It, you know, we can only learn from each other rather than um, trying to um, keep ourselves to our silos. That's, that you know, progress happens when we, when we learn from each other. And I think that um, I think this is a great example of, of how that has happened. And now you you see in the literature a lot more interest in understanding um, the optimal management of this disease. And um, there's great interest in the West of, um, of the surgical approach. And there is increasing um, utilization in the East of radiotherapy in addition to lateral um, pelvic lymph node dissection. So based on the current literature, um, can you talk to us who are the candidates Dates that would best benefit from neoadjuvant chemo radiotherapy, and the second part to that question for me uh, would be, what are some of the quote unquote side effects of chemo neoadjuvant um, uh, chemo radiotherapy, um, and the challenges that they it can produce or one should expect when these patients do undergo um, that. Uh, uh, resections, including lateral pelvic lymph node dissections. That has been a point of discussion for many, many years in the West, and we've moved well beyond that now. That is to say, there was a lot of concern in the in the U.S. Um, the evolution we we kind of simplified that evolution in our earlier discussion was um, in, the addition of radio radiotherapy came initially after surgery, not before surgery. Although we all recognize now the superiority of preoperative to postoperative treatment. And the reason that um, postoperative treatment remained a treatment standard in the US for so long is because of, of this concern that surgery would be more difficult after radiation therapy. Um, and the same comments are made um, about surgery in the lateral compartment, that it would be more difficult after radiation therapy. And I would say um, we have learned how to operate after radiation. And in that initial treatment phase, that is, we're not talking about two, three years later, we're talking about, you know, within the, the first year uh, after radiotherapy, we can successfully perform surgery safely without significant um, risk for added morbidity because we gave radiotherapy. Um, so, so we don't, we need not be concerned about the addition of radiation uh, these days. Um, I would say also the techniques have improved for radiation as well. What we really need to be concerned about is optimal treatment. But I would also add that when we see patients who have evidence for um, lateral pelvic lymph node metastasis, so what are the indications of that? Well, there is some debate, but it appears that um, lymph node size is, is a predictor. So we would say seven millimeters or greater would be clinical evidence of disease. Um, also, there are certain patterns on MRI. So everyone needs a high quality uh, rectal MRI. This is not a standard pelvic MRI. This is a dedicated rectal cancer MRI. And still in the US, we are working on improving the or um, making high quality MRI more broadly available because there's tremendous variation in the quality of MR imaging. 
but there are certain patterns that we can see heterogeneity of the, the lymph nodes, speculation, et cetera, that indicate that there is um, high risk for those to be metastatic. As we've already discussed, these are patients who not only have increased risk of local failure, but also have increased risk of distant failure. So these are the patients in whom we want to intensify our preoperative treatment. And increasingly, we're seeing that um, we're utilizing a strategy where we give not only radiotherapy, but additional chemotherapy uh, prior to surgery in those, in those um, patients. These, some of these patients, as um, some of these patients will achieve, just like we can in, in the rectum itself, sterilization of these lymph nodes after, after radiation therapy. Um, and so it's important for us to also reevaluate these patients after they have completed their preoperative treatment. That is after they've completed radiation and have had an opportunity uh, um, to respond to that treatment. And what, what we and others have shown is that when these lymph nodes become smaller, they regress. When they become four millimeters or less, or less than five millimeters, we um, have not observed them to be persistently positive. Now this requires obviously a little bit more validation. This is, um, uh, there remains some controversy as to the value of that post-treatment imaging, but certainly the experience um, uh, that, that, um, that we have demonstrated and we and others have demonstrated and, and uh, what's reflected in, in our experience is that when these lymph nodes respond that they get smaller when the signal intensity um, uh, evolves so that they no longer have some of those high risk characteristics. We've not found them on final pathologic evaluation to have persistent um, uh, metastatic deposits in them. Now, I think that this is an area we need to continue to investigate. That is, if a patient has clinical evidence of disease and there's been treatment response, do they still need dissection or not? And so that is something that uh, we're still learning about. Um, but hopefully that answers your question about how do we decide who should get these treatments and how, should, how do we decide who should get both radiation and surgery um, or radiation alone. And I will add then, if, if you were to take an Eastern perspective to this, as we've already shown from JCOG0212, that a prophylactic treatment, an appropriate prophylactic treatment is TME surgery plus lateral pelvic lymph node dissection, you could make the argument there then it's appropriate without evidence, clinical evidence of disease to do that, to operate with lateral pelvic lymph node dissection and not incorporate radiation at all. But as we've um, also discussed, when there's clinical evidence of disease, even if you were to take that approach, which is that the, um, that the standard treatment is surgery, plus lateral pelvic, is TME surgery plus lateral pelvic lymph node dissection. Just as we would add lateral pelvic lymph node dissection to our chemoradiation approach, they would add or should add chemoradiation to the lateral pelvic lymph node dissection approach. That makes, uh, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I can, I can already see this landmark series being continued um, and kind of taking the path that esophageal cancer has taken, which is, you know, after you do see a response in the lateral lymph nodes, do you you know do the do you do the, go forward with the lateral pelvic lymph node dissection or not? Do you wait and watch? You know, like the controversies that have come up in the rectal cancer. So um, I think there's definitely more to come and more to learn as this um, evolves e even further. 
So um, I actually had a um, kind of off-topic um, follow-up question in regards to people who do undergo or should undergo uh, neoadjuvant radiotherapy. What? How do you uh, take a patient that has uh, a low rectal cancer that's perhaps obstructing or close, you know, like close to? Uh, uh, you know, obstruction, causing obstructive symptoms? And um, how do you justify giving radiotherapy when, you know, considering that they might get, you know, fully obstructed? Yeah, that is obviously an important uh, clinical decision-making point um, for, for those patients. I think we have to always step back and think, what is the optimal treatment for this patient? If this patient were not obstructing, what would we want to do? Would surgery upfront be adequate treatment for this patient or not? And I think the answer to that question in the scenario described is that it would not be, right? Optimal treatment in that patient includes multimodality care. That is, you know, whether it includes uh, um, additional systemic chemotherapy or not, that patient needs preoperative radiation therapy. Well, it's pretty simple to resolve this this issue for low rectal cancer, the patient simply needs to be diverted first. So you leave the tumor intact, divert the patient so that you no longer have this concern of obstruction, and then go ahead and treat that patient. Those patients in whom you still um, have uh, significant lumen available, then obviously that would not be necessary. But this is certainly um, an approach um, you know, that we utilize um, not uncommonly for those patients who present late uh, in their disease course. Excellent. Um, I think in order to uh, wrap up this uh, really great discussion, um, could you talk to us about your practice um, at MD Anderson and the current state and recommendations for uh, based on the studies that we have discussed in our episode today? So um, unfortunately, we do see a lot of patients who have locally advanced disease, those with a number of features that we haven't even talked about on this podcast, but high-risk features that we can identify by MRI, um, and lateral pelvic lymph node metastasis is about one of them. So um, all of our patients um, will undergo direct evaluation by the surgeon. That includes direct endoscopic evaluation. I think that's critical. They will all undergo multidisciplinary review where we have a team of dedicated radiologists who have expertise in rectal MR imaging, as well as our um, our GI radiation oncologists with an interest in rectal cancer and the medical oncologists as well. And so multidisciplinary evaluation is key. And I would advocate that in any circumstance is that um, we want detailed information. So you want complete initial evaluation. It has to be high quality data with which we are working. And then uh, multidisciplinary discussion in order to um, develop the optimal treatment approach. I think we've alluded to kind of the different strategies that we've utilized you know, in patients who have this kind of aggressive disease. Clearly, um, those patients who have lateral pelvic lymph node metastasis fall into a higher risk group. We've talked about that already, right? They are much higher, they're at a much higher risk, not only for local failure, but for distant metastases as well. So we want to optimize their treatment. And we know that optimizing the treatment before surgery um, is much 
uh, more likely to be successful, that the treatment completion rates are higher, that um, that uh, toxicity is lower. And so we, we take that approach. So we, we um, all patients undergo multidisciplinary evaluation, and then we come up with a treatment plan that's appropriate for that patient. That also means that those patients who have lower risk disease they don't need all of that intensive treatment. There are some patients who would not even need radiotherapy depending on their disease. And so that's why it's so critically important that um, we have high quality data that we can use. That is, um, in particularly for rectal cancer, it's high quality rectal MRI imaging. It's important since you, ha you will have a bunch of uh, colleagues uh, and you know, trainees who will be listening to this podcast, it's important for all surgeons to become familiar with imaging modalities and become familiar at how to, um, how to not only about how to use them, but how to interpret those images. And um, that's something that, um, that's something that will come with additional experience, but also is facilitated by having this um, regular interchange and dialogue with our multidisciplinary colleagues. Well, this has really been a wonderful discussion, Dr. Chang. Thanks for coming on and talking with us about it. Really appreciate it. Uh, any last words before we let you go? Well, I just want to congratulate you guys um, on this podcast series. I think it's terrific that you're doing this, and I'm sure that many people benefit um, benefit from listening to them. Um, it's terrific that you've partnered with the Annals of Surgical Oncology and the SSO. These are really important topics and they're really actually cutting edge topics, in fact. Um, so, so hopefully this will be something useful to, uh, for all of your uh, listeners. And um, yeah, I, I really wish you all luck in your uh, careers. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.